0: in the Bible to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 is where we're reading from today. Ephesians chapter 6, the whole armour of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word that we read. I'm going to invite Pastor Keith up, and um, before he um, gives us God's word, we're just going to pray. Lord God, thank you um, that we get to hear from your servant Keith this morning. I pray that you would open our our hearts and our ears to what you have to say through him. Lord God, bless him as he speaks, Um, give him courage, and um, give us humility as we listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good for me to be here. This is a much younger church than the last church that I preached at, when I was away from my church and when I preached there I I had to be careful because I noticed that some of the older gentlemen they had a habit of falling asleep during the sermon so I'll keep a good eye on you but I told them this story I once heard about a uh, a pastor who had a lady come up to him and said pastor my my husband always falls asleep when you start preaching can you do something about it because it's embarrassing me anyway uh, the pastor said leave it to me I'll fix him next Sunday morning Anyway, he starts his sermon next Sunday morning and he notices that the guy has fallen asleep. So he lowers his voice and he says to the congregation, congregation, if you're going to heaven, just remain seated. And then he says, but if you're going to hell, stand up. (laughs) And of course, this poor guy wakes up and he stands up to his feet. And the pastor says to him, he says, son, he says, do you know what it means that you are standing and where it says that you're going. And the guy says, I don't pastor, but it's you and I who are going there. (laughs) You know, one of the things that we often pray for is, uh, is we say thank you to God for the wonderful country in which we live. We live in an amazing country. And uh, I've often said to people, you know, we've got to count our blessings because we have got so much freedom in this country to worship God. But, you know, lately I've been starting to get a few doubts. I was driving home a couple of weeks ago when they made the announcement overnight that there would be no more RE during class times in our Christian schools. And I thought to the fact that already a year before, the previous government had made it almost impossible to have RE. I used to teach 120 preppies for about 20 years in uh, in the state schools and a couple of years ago the government decided that parents had to opt in and not opt out and our 120 preppies went down to about a dozen and i thought what's going on in our country and you look at what's behind the scenes and you realize that there are people who are so anti-christian incredibly anti-christian i like listening to the radio when i drive and uh, i like listening to uh, talk radio and i'm amazed at how much anti-christian stuff comes onto talk radio even just recently with the refugee crisis you know people are arcing up because some minister or other said we ought to bring christian syrians in and they're saying why should we select christians and they really get angry and they get upset about that sri has been destroyed in our schools and then we've got this whole push for homosexual marriage You know, at first I thought, well, look, if gays want to get married, let them get married because nobody else wants to get married in our society anyway. You know, what's the point? And then I thought about it a little bit deeper. And you begin to realize that, again, there is an agenda here. And I started reading a bit of stuff. And part of the agenda is it's got nothing to do with equal rights. It's got nothing to do with marriage equality. There's the movement around that is trying to de-Christianize our society, bit by bit, to take away everything that we value as Christians. And it's happened with marriage because if you are homosexual and you want to live in a relationship with, a, with, with your partner, you've got exactly the same rights as anybody else has. You know, it's not about equality. And in any case, if it was about equality, what about my Muslim friends who back in Egypt or back in some other countries had more than one wife? What's happened to their equality? Why shouldn't they have two legal marriages in Australia? It's got much more to do with other things. I believe in the end it becomes a way in which Christians can be persecuted. When I first read that, I thought that can't be possible. But then I read about what's happening in Canada. In Canada now, because they've passed legislation that says that there's got to be marriage equality, so-called, if you refuse in any way to respect that, and if you as a, uh, a marriage celebrant, or if you as someone who organizes marriages decide that you won't marry a gay couple because it's against your beliefs, they can take you to court. And their costs are all paid for in Canada. They don't have to spend a cent. You have to defend yourself, but you've got to pay your own costs. And if you're found guilty, a huge fine is levied against you. And I read of business after business, person after person in Canada that have been made bankrupt by people deliberately targeting them we saw it in, in America just recently with that, uh, with that county clerk, Kim Davis in Kentucky, where they actually came from other states to target her deliberately so she ended up in jail. And you think there's much more to this. There is much more to this than just marriage equality. There's a campaign in our society against Christians. I was watching a debate on TV on the press club and it was between Corey Bernardi and, and Penny Wong and uh, you know they were both making good points I thought what Corey Bernardi s- said made good sense I thought Penny Wong was just repeating the rhetoric of the of the gay movement but what amazed me was watching the audience and these were the, the journalists that write for our papers and that speak on our radios and do our news broadcasts and I was watching the audience and every time Penny Wong spoke they clapped and they cheered every time Corey Bernardi spoke they booed. And I thought, what's going on in our society? Where is this anti-Christian bias coming from? What's happening to our country? Now, how do we handle these issues? And that's why I've chosen Ephesians chapter 6, reading from verse 10. You know, finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. And then we've got verse 12. And these are critical words. Because I believe that as Christians, if we don't handle these things the right way, we're going to do more harm than good. Scripture says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against other human beings. But it's against authorities, against powers, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When I watched that debate at the press club, I thought, isn't it fascinating? What is it that grabs people's minds so that automatically they think it is the best thing in the world to mock Christians? What is it that takes hold of people's minds? And you begin to realize there's a spiritual battle going on. There's a spiritual battle going on for our nation. how do we deal with that? You know, in 2 Chronicles 10, 2 Chronicles 10 verse 4, it says this, and I think it's important for us to to realize this. This is a very, very significant scripture. 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, it says this, and it talks again about spiritual warfare. It says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine powers to demolish strongholds. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. You know, many hundreds of years ago, John Calvin made the comment to his followers and he said, if we fight with the weapons of the devil, we fight on the devil's side. If we fight with the devil's weapons, we fight on his side. So what weapons do we use? What are the scriptural, biblical weapons that we use in spiritual warfare? Well, I'm going to take you to a few scriptures. And the first is, it's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. It comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where you have an amazing story. But this gives us insight into how spiritual warfare worked in the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Menites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. And some people came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. Huge army. Now, this wasn't just human warfare. We know from studying these things that the Moabites and the Ammonites, they'd sold themselves to Satan. And they were, in a sense, being used by Satan to try to destroy God's people. And that happened again and again and again. Because, after all, God's people were the people through whom the Messiah was going to be nurtured. And if Satan could destroy God's people, if he could destroy that line that would lead to the birth of Jesus, then he would be able to destroy Jesus and stop God's plan of salvation. So all along you see Israel being attacked from both the outside and the inside. And here this huge army is coming against Israel and they tell Jehoshaphat. And what does Jehoshaphat do? Verse 3, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. Now, I'm pretty sure that there would have been some hawks in his cabinet that said, Jehoshaphat, what on earth are you doing? Shouldn't you be calling everybody to arms? Shouldn't you be sending messages out to all the villages and say, guys, come, we've got to fight. We've got a huge army coming against us. And you're calling us to prayer. You're calling us to inquire of the Lord. You're calling us to fast. (coughs) Have a look at what happens next. They come together and it's a most beautiful picture because in verse 13 of chapter 20 it says all the men of judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the lord you know they all came together even the children were included then the spirit of the lord came upon jehaziel son of zechariah and he's a descendant of asaph as he stood in the assembly He said, listen King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army for the battle is not yours but God's. What did he mean? Well verse 20, verse 20, well that's verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some of the Levites from the Koahites and the Korahites stood up and praised the God, the, the Lord, the God of Israel with a very loud voice. And early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. And after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. That was his battle plan. From a human point of view, that was totally ridiculous. Here's Jehoshaphat, and instead of calling in all the troops from the surrounding villages, he gets the men, the women, and the children to a worship service, and they start praying, and they wait upon God. And then he says, What I want you to do is I want you to form a choir a male voice choir and this male voice choir is going to be at the head of the army and they're going to march out and they're going to sing a song of powerful worship give thanks to the lord for his love endures forever song of powerful worship it seems from a human point of view to be crazy but verse 22 as they began to sing and to praise the lord set ambushes against the men of ammon and moab and mount Seir who were invading judah and they were defeated The enemy were confused as God's people started praising. Later on, I want to talk about the fall of the Berlin Wall. And exactly the same thing happened there. The enemy were confused as God's people started praising and worshipping. Now, this is a principle that we have in Scripture. Psalm 149, verses 6 to 9. Psalm 149, second last verse, uh, Psalm of the Bible. And it talks about spiritual warfare. And what does it say in Psalm 149? It says this, verse 5. Well, actually, if we start from verse 1, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of His faithful people. Let Israel rejoice in their Maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their King. Let them praise His name with dancing and make music to Him with timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes delight in His people. He crowns the humble with victory. Let His faithful people rejoice in this honour and sing for joy on their beds may the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his faithful people. Now, psalmist didn't literally mean that we go to bed singing with a, with, a, with a physical sword in our hands. What he's saying there is as we worship God, we're taking up the sword of the Spirit. As we worship God, we are actually taking up the most powerful weapon that we have, and that is worship. That is worship. That's what Jehoshaphat did. It was the worship that defeated the enemy. They couldn't physically have defeated that enemy. It was far too big for them, but they could spiritually. I think of Paul and Silas in Acts 16. They're in the jail, locked away in the dungeon. What were they doing? They were singing praises and worshipping God. And as they worshipped God, guess what happened? The prison fell apart. The prison fell apart. We know that God had his plans because nobody escaped and God was concerned about that jailer who was running the jail. But it was worship that led to freedom. Now we turn to the New Testament and I have a look at the way Jesus tells us to do things. And I'm fascinated By what Jesus tells us to do. And I just, my heart breaks when I see Christians ignoring the teaching of Jesus. I don't know if you're on Facebook, but sometimes I'm I'm on Facebook and I see the posts that Christians put up, especially against Muslims, and I think, would Jesus have done that? Jesus lived amongst Samaritans, and the Samaritans were the enemy of the Jewish people. They hated them. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Where did Jesus go? Into Samaria. Who did Jesus wait for? The Samaritan woman at the well. He loved the Samaritans. And I see Christians putting up posts saying, we've got to be fearful. We've got to hate the Muslims. We've got to resist them. And I think, Jesus wouldn't do that. You're trying to fight your fears with human weapons instead of spiritual weapons. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 43, he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies, love your enemies and pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Very, very powerful, incredibly powerful teaching on spiritual warfare. East Germany had one of the most evil regimes that ever existed. I remember reading a book about it once and they actually put up the Berlin Wall to keep their people in. It was such an awful, evil government that they actually had to lock their people in because before the wall was put up, hundreds of thousands of East Germans just went over to the West where there was a lot more freedom. So they put up the wall to keep their people in and then they had the Stasi, the secret police, the state heim police who who used to who, who were terrible and everybody was being watched it was a, a culture where there was incredible fear. The only places where there was any freedom at all was inside the churches and uh, and that was only when the churches were praying because nobody thought that anything would ever come from prayer it 's fascinating that even the ministers in the East German Church had to be trained by the secular theological colleges and they were told what they had to preach on but uh, they basically ignored the churches. There was a P- Pastor Christian uh, Fuhrer and Pastor Christian, he was the pastor of a big cathedral church in Leipzig and he decided, I think it was, it was nine years, now seven years, seven years before the Berlin Wall, he decided that he was going to do something different. He was going to start holding a prayer meeting for peace on a Monday night because he'd been reading these scriptures he'd been reading the teachings of Jesus and the people they, they were angry at their own regime and there was a lot of unrest and he said no we we can't go that way we've got to start praying that's the only spiritual weapon that we've got so every Monday night he opened up this huge cathedral church for a prayer meeting and the first Monday night I think less than 12 people turned up Four years later, there were still only about 20 or 30 people. But every Monday night, they were praying there. Then he decided that he was going to put a sign outside the church saying, prayers for peace, everybody welcome. The Stasi agents saw that and they thought, ooh, something's going on here. This guy is trying to foment rebellion. We better check this out. So the Stasi ordered all their people and all their sympathizers to go to this prayer meeting. The church was packed there were probably a dozen Christians there and the rest were all Stasi. Pastor Christian said it was the most amazing time. He said, for the next four years, every Monday night, I preached the gospel. Every Monday night, I taught what Jesus taught. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And he said, I am convinced that many of those Stasi people who came, because they heard about Jesus, they heard the gospel, they were converted. Anyway, we come up to just before just a month before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And what happened was that this prayer meeting had grown huge. Churches all over East Germany were filled with people praying. And the message kept on coming out. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Follow the way of Jesus. We've got to fight this physical regime with spiritual weapons and not any other way. (coughs) And uh, Pastor Christian said, You know, When the people wanted to march, he said he made sure that they had a candle in one hand and a flower in the other hand because he said if people have got something in both hands, they can't pick up bricks and throw it at the police. Anyway, about a month before the fall of the Berlin Wall, the authorities decided that they were once and for all going to completely destroy this movement, completely destroy it. There was a march planned. About 100,000 people were going to march in the streets of Leipzig, 100,000 people with candles and flowers, singing hymns, praying, and they decided that they were going to bring the soldiers in and that they were just going to shoot them. They were going to kill as many as they could. They actually contacted the hospitals and said, be ready to receive victims of gunshot wounds. You know, they set up all this stuff in place. They were ready to do it. The people started marching and the soldiers didn't move. They didn't know what to do. later on one of the commanders was asked what happened how come you didn't stop the march how come you didn't shoot them he said well we were prepared to meet aggression and to meet violence but we simply didn't know what to do in the face of candles and prayer we didn't know what to do it's the same story of jehoshaphat repeated in modern day history where god's people started marching And as they marched, they sang songs of praise and worship to God. They gave glory to Jesus. And as they marched, the enemy were confused and didn't know what to do. And within a month, the Berlin Wall had fallen. Because after that, the the President, Honecker, resigned because he realized he'd lost control of the people. And the people got their confidence. They realized they could stand up against this regime. It's fascinating to read some of the BBC reports from the time. Incredible stuff. Incredible stuff when, uh, when God's people start fighting the enemy with God's weapons. We do not fight with the weapons of this world. I want to encourage you. It was beautiful to see you guys praying together. Because I thought, imagine what would happen in Australia if in response to some of these challenges that we have, instead of aggression, instead of hatred, the church just started praying together and worshipping together and i've been encouraging people wherever i preach and say look we've got to start praying again i don't know if you've ever read much of the history of what's happened during world war ii what's happened in africa when people started praying but it's it's inspiring whole countries have been changed as christians have started taking hold of their spiritual weapons as they started worshipping it's beautiful to be in a church where worship is at the focus it's so important but imagine if right across this nation, right across this state, the moment some of these announcements had been made about RE, that the churches were just packed with people praying. But we didn't do it, did we? We'd like to use the weapons that we're familiar with. We'd like to write our letters and to agitate and to get angry and to get upset. But God says, those weapons don't work. We've got to use spiritual weapons. Do you know, coming to a prayer meeting... It's one of the hardest things we can do. I don't know about you, but uh, whenever we have, our, we have a prayer meeting every week, and we've always had one every week, and uh, every time it's time to go to a prayer meeting, guess what? You feel tired, you feel weak, you feel sick, and you look for any excuse not to go. I don't know if you've had that experience. Maybe I'm very unholy. <laughs> but then I think to myself, no. It's because the one thing Satan doesn't want us to do is to go to a prayer meeting. I can guarantee you in any church, you can call any meeting. You can call a meeting about the color of the... You're going to paint the bricks in the building. You can call a meeting about organizing this. You can call a meeting and you'll get people come willingly. But you say, let's come together for prayer. And it's tough and it's hard, isn't it? It's not easy because they're the weapons at work. You can have a thousand meetings about things. They don't do anything. The things that work is when we have the spiritual weapons. You know, one of the things that we've got to realize is that Jesus has won the victory. His death on the cross has defeated Satan. We get so fearful. I see Christians that are fearful. I I read a post and it originated with the Jews. But, I mean, the Jews, Jewish people, the, the Jewish nation, Israel, they still hold to hate your enemies. They haven't listened to the teaching of Jesus. And basically this post said, the end of Europe. And they were saying that all these Muslims are streaming into Europe to take over Europe and it's going to be the end of civilization as we know it. And they were so fearful. Christians were posting this stuff, pushing it on. And they were so fearful. And I thought to myself, what a shame that we get into fear. Why don't we get into love? Why don't we get into prayer? Why don't we get into just blessing our enemies? Imagine what would happen if you blessed your enemy. Let me finish with a little passage from Romans and in the book of Romans Paul is talking about what we do with our enemies and uh, this is a fascinating thing, it's a fascinating passage and uh, in Romans chapter 12 he says this, verse 17, and this ought to be the mantra for all Christians, this ought to inform the way we respond and the way we react. you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. (laughs) I used to think, oh, that's a bit of a strange passage. That means if I love my enemies, I'm going to heap burning coals on his head. What does that mean? You've got to understand the context. It comes from the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament passage, an Old Testament commandment. And in those days, of course, you didn't have um, gas heaters or electric stoves or gas stoves. If you want to light a fire, it was a laborious project. You know, you had to use a stick and you know how it is and how they used to light fires in the old days, it's really hard and really tough. So what they did is fire was precious and somebody in every village would be appointed to keep the coals burning all night and every morning at daybreak they would then carry these coals and if you've ever been in the Middle East you'll know they carry everything on their heads They would carry these poles, coals, these burning coals to every household. Every household. Burning coals on their head. And they would take their tongs and they would give coals. They'd give burning coals to each family. They'd get their fires going again for the day so that they could cook and boil their water and everything else. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying if you feed your enemies, if you give them something to drink, you're going to turn your enemy into someone who's going to become a blessing, a blessing. Imagine that. Let me tell you something that as Christians are ministering to the Muslims that are fleeing from Syria, one of the things that I'm hearing is that hundreds of thousands of these Muslims, or thousands of these Muslims, are actually turning to Jesus. They're disillusioned with the Muslim faith, and they're turning to Jesus. It's an amazing thing. We've got a lady in our church that has spent years teaching English to a Muslim lady and it's amazing the story she tells me how when she goes into the mosque and she starts praying, she sees a vision of Jesus. Jesus. So many of them are open to Jesus. In the Quran, Jesus is the only prophet that heals. Have you ever thought of blessing the Muslim neighbours? Praying for them? Loving them? Across road across the passageway from the the driveway from our church we've got two groups of Muslims we've got a group of Muslims that run a butchery who are the sweetest most lovable people that you could ever meet they're really kind next to them we've got a smoking cafe you know the water pipes and those Muslims are young and aggressive and not very nice and uh, and uh, the one guy is just always raging and, and and getting angry and I thought what do I do what do I do I had a whole lot of apples that I picked up one day and I knocked on his door and I said, would you like a bag of apples? And it was amazing, you know, for the next few days he was really lovely towards me. (laughs) And I thought, but that's the way we do it, isn't it? Jesus taught us to love, to love because he loved us so much that he gave his life for us. I want to encourage you as a church to love and to pray and never underestimate the weapons of spiritual warfare. Never underestimate them. Prayer and worship. Worship. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're your followers. And when you walked the earth, you did the most amazing things. You walked into Samaria and you loved and you healed Samaritans. You were even told the parable of the good Samaritan. And Lord Jesus, nobody was too black, too dirty, too broken, too wounded, too much of an outcast, too anything for you. You are the one who said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Lord Jesus, you haven't changed. So Lord, I just thank you for the people here. I thank you that we can make an enormous difference in our community, that as we love and as we pray, as we reflect you, Jesus that lives are going to be changed. We pray for our nation. We pray for our country because we know that there are forces at work that would seek to to just stand up against Christianity and to destroy Christianity in our land. And we just thank you for every leader and every politician that makes a stand for you. Would you bless them? Would you protect them? Would you encourage them? We pray for the churches in this nation, Lord, That as churches we may not be so busy building kingdoms that we forget what we're here for and that is to be Jesus in this land and to worship you and to put you first and to praise you and to adore you. We just thank you, Lord, that the victory is won as we worship and as we pray and as we use the spiritual weapons that we have to pull down strongholds. So, Lord, just bless us, bless every one of us and we just thank you that you love us to bits.